Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I am Michael, and with me, uh, against his will, under duress, is Cameron. I'm an imp. <laughs> I'm a little goblin in a hat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, what's great about that is I don't think we ever get a chance to hear an imp speak in this comic, but I'm pretty sure that's how they would speak if it's exactly how they sound. Yeah. 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 Well, that, you know what? That's an interesting question for you uh, is uh, do we ever get like fully voiced flash animations <laughs> at some point? Does that happen? Uh, no, it does not. Um, I would say a, a little hint uh, that I'm either going to complain completely forget by the time we get to it uh is that we mm -hmm. do hear a character's voice uh and it's bad uh, that could mean so much it could they could open up their mouth and just static comes out blows out <laughs> your speakers it, that could mean so many or it could be deeply offensive i guess yeah, the, yeah. no it's it's not it's, it's not that it's just it means bad times are happening within the narrative uh i see, uh, I see. The it's interesting that you mentioned that because I I think like you know th what occurs to me immediately is that one comic that did do that was Bob and George. Did you ever read Bob and George? No, this is exactly like you know there there's often a joke on the internet that comes up. It's come up for years, and I've seen it in many different forms where uh you know people are talking about UK uh like comedy shows. Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, hey, uh, you know, you're talking to a UK person about important comedy. And they're like, oh, yeah, the, uh, you know, Franny and Jefferson, that famous comedy that ran for one series in 1985 that everyone from Britain knows. That's exactly how I feel about you talking about web comics. <laughs> it's like, what kind of parochial island culture are you from, Michael? Where I would know about, what is this, Bob and George? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so seriously, you don't know anything about Bob I, and George? It conjures no, nothing I'm, for you? No. Bob and George was a Mega Man sprite comic. <laughs> and is, I think, often considered to be, like, the big inspiration behind, like, the sprite comic tradition. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily the first, but uh, it was, you know, it was uh, done by a guy named Dave Inez. Uh, and I'm bringing it up here, one, because I read it, but two, uh, I'm going to be invoking it probably consistently in the future because of some of the things that happen in Bob and George are like reprocessed in Homestuck. Not, I think, directly, but because of the format of web comics and kind of what Bob and George got up to. Uh, but mm -hmm. the, the story briefly behind Bob and George is that uh, the author wanted to make a web comic, but I'll call it Bob and George and it'll be about two guys named Bob and George. And then... Uh, realized he didn't uh really like how he drew and didn't think he had the art skills to actually put together a comic so it's kind of like filler started making little comics with Mega Man sprites and this took off in a kind of unexpected way and so the rest of Bob and George becomes about retelling the plots of the Mega Man games uh, but also with all of this like you know ballooning cast of self insert characters including <laughs> Bob and George themselves <laughs> And we get into parallel timelines, uh, alternate universes. The author shows up uh, as a character. There are various characters who are trying to kill the author to take over the comic. Uh, but how Bob and George ends, 
uh, its kind of big thing. I can't remember exactly when it ended, not off the top of my head, but it was some spoilers for Bob and George, everyone, by the way. Yeah, spoilers. Like, like huge spoilers for Bob and George coming up. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get specific, but like how it ends, how it kind of builds to its conclusion is uh, it also ended with a big flash animation and that ended up being fully voiced. Mm. Oh, gotcha. The mm -hmm. uh, Grant Morrison. We're going to talk about this as we as we uh, get into this episode. Uh, we're going to talk. I, I want to talk about Alan Moore at some point. Mm -hmm. But the other kind of shadow influence, I think, on this, uh, on like all of these web comics of that time period, are the like Vertigo comics of the '90s. Yes, um, Grant. Like I look, it's it could just be confluence, postmodernity writ large eating the world. But uh, when when a, when someone's talking to an author in a comic, mm -hmm. or there's like weird meta moves, hard not to think about Grant Morrison, mm -hmm. uh, and you know Animal Man and that whole thing where he meets Animal Man and all that stuff, uh, or even the uh, the Coyote episode or not episode, but um, uh, issue. Do you know what I'm talking about of of Animal Man? Uh, no, this is actually, I never read the Animal Man run, even though it was recommended to me multiple oh, times. Oh, buddy. You gotta read it. Yeah. Uh, short, so very, very doable, but there's an episode in which basically the coyote from, from like Wiley Coyote, uh, <laughs> a genericized version, ends up in the real world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, heartbreaking, Aww. let me tell you. Yeah. But, uh, but very much this kind of meta move that... That already, uh, you know, I, I feel Homestuck kind of playing in that in that world, and lots of web comics did. Um, and I guess maybe it's hard not to reflect on form when you know things like uh, pixel art comics and things like that are running around, which mm -hmm. are just you know the conceit is this meta move or this meta form, or even you know uh, I think last episode we talked about dinosaur comics and the whole conceit there is a meta move. Yes, you know, that that the thing doesn't work. So 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 many of these moved on meta concepts and kind of you know uh everyone is in on the joke but the joke is still the con the thing that constrains it and makes it work and trying to navigate that kind of position so i'm not surprised that you know authors show up or or things like that and uh i don't know if that happens in homestuck or not because again i'm radically ignorant i have only read and only know about things that we have looked at on this show mm -hmm. on purpose mm-hmm uh, so just to cover some things that have been mentioned in previous episodes or parts uh, the you know, which whichever your heart desires, it's parts. Just by the way, you should be calling these parts. You're listening to a part right now, not an episode, please. Uh, anyway, uh, you asked a couple of things. You know, one was what was Hussey doing kind of at the time of Problem Sleuth? Uh, when it was being very consistently updated and then onward into Homestuck. And my answer was uh, basically like slinging merch. Uh, like uh, by the time Problem Sleuth comes around, that seems to be one of the main movers. But that was also informed by my knowledge of like every other person on the webcomics scene at this time and kind of what they were doing if they uh, didn't have a day job. It was merch sales, really, that were supporting them. And I had found an interview with Hussey from, I think, 2013, where it's just very briefly mentioned that prior to Homestuck really taking off, uh, they were supporting themselves with, with their webcomics work, and it was hard going. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I had interpreted that to mean just... Uh, pure merch sales, basically, like print books, T-shirts and so on. And I know that there were uh, 
Problem Sleuth t-shirts. There were Problem Sleuth prints. Uh, you know, I have one here in my office. Uh, so uh, that's what I had kind of just assumed. And in that assumption, I had completely forgotten this thing from the Problem Sleuth era that actually is going to be extremely relevant for the discussion we're going to have in this uh, part. <laughs> Almost said episode there, like some sort of fool. Uh, <laughs> like someone who doesn't know the concept. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but during the Problem Sleuth era, uh, you could submit a reader command and then pay Hussey to illustrate it. So Hussey was essentially doing uh, just like an absurd number of commissions uh, for people who uh, I think it was, you know, this is the other thing to keep in mind. This is before Patreon. So this is like in the days of I think like PayPal probably is what Hussey is using, uh, where you can PayPal Hussey. Uh, I, I, the, the amount of money as the readership grows changes uh, because of obviously there, there are more demands on time. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think at, by a certain point, it was kind of like, you know, you can pay like $20 and it'll be, you know, one panel or a couple of panels or something. And it can just be uh, the Problem Sleuth characters in the main comic got to a position and then did something. But you wanted to see what happened if they did something else. Uh, and so you pay that money and Hussey would illustrate those things. And one of the the way this came back to me is I've been digging into I've been doing my research, digging into old news posts and, and blog posts and things like that. And at the time, just before Homestuck begins, uh, one of the consistent things in Hussey's news posts and blog updates is just like I'm working on the the reader, the paid reader commands. Just, you know, constant updates. I have this many more to work through, so on and so forth. And this is all to the point that you raised uh, previously, uh, which is that, like, you know, th there is a, a form of labor here and a very per peculiar and particular one uh, where it, it really is responding to, to forum commands in this way, uh, having sort of the uh, infrastructure in place that, uh, and then the readership kind of having their own buy-in that they want to see these alternative kind of spins on these characters, or, uh, in some cases, right. I want the characters in problem sleuth to meet my original characters. And so that's a thing that happens in these, uh, little like non-canon commissioned panels. Uh, one of the reasons I forgot about these is that I've already mentioned that I was not deep into problem sleuth and I knew that these were happening but I did not read them. There mm. were people who did read them. There was kind of like, you know, a subsection of the fan base who who read these and uh, like their own kind of like, you know, jokes and memes bubbled up from this uh, little subsection. Uh, and this is going to come up later in, in our discussion. So this is one of the reasons why I set that stage now. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out then uh, is you had asked about kind of uh, along with that sort of the productivity. Uh, very interestingly, an old news post uh, from June 7th of 2009, which is just at the end of Act 1, which we've just completed, by the way. If you're just joining us, then we have read up through the end of Act 1 for Homestuck, and we'll be talking about uh, the beginning of Act 2 today. Uh, Hussey writes, uh, Hey, so looks like we're through Act 1, and I didn't even know there would be acts until a few days ago. How about that? So again, returning to the question of how many things are planned ahead versus kind of improvised, uh, the act structure appears to have been total improvisation. Uh, Hussey, you know, talks about uh, you know, this is basically says 
this first act was kind of a prologue. Uh, it took longer than they expected. Uh, this is a recurring theme throughout all of Homestuck is uh, all of these arcs took longer than expected. Uh, but then they bust out some numbers. Glancing backwards, I can't help but monitor my progress. 55 days, this is for the total of Act 1. 55 mm -hmm. days, 247 pages with 295 images. That's a little more than five images per day, which is almost the exact pace I set with Problem Sleuth over the course of a year. I was very surprised to learn this, mostly because many of these Homestuck pages are a lot more detailed and labor-intensive, especially with the Flash animations mixed in there. I will decide this statistical analysis yields good news. Um, then they talk a little bit about how they're feeling more capable with Flash and so on and so forth. Uh, so just, you know, some interesting, uh, and this is going to continue, I guess, throughout this show, is that if I dig up uh, interesting news posts or bits of information that address some point that I feel like was maybe very shallowly addressed earlier, I'm going to bring those things back so we can uh, pull those into our analysis. Well, that's an absolutely breakneck pace. Yes. The, the idea, producing five pages of this in a day, and, and the way that that also uh, kind of implies that if Hussey didn't know about act structure, then, then probably couldn't have worked. I mean, couldn't have worked on that final Flash animation for weeks or anything. That had to be a few days at, at most. Uh, I believe uh, the author commentary specifically says that Flash animation was put together in like a day. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that thing is, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's pretty complicated, uh, especially to put together in a day. Yeah, just, I mean, so I think something to be aware of going forward with Homestuck, and I, I guess I hadn't thought about this, um, you know, because I'm not really paying attention to the dates, but yeah, absolutely, you know, this is only a couple months here for, for Act 1. I guess something to pay attention to is that, you know, as we have developed, I think we've developed now, I think, a healthy... Um, kind of online critique of overwork and, you know, uh, burning creators out. I think we have a good sense that that's a bad thing to do. Um, but uh, Homestuck is probably I, some measure of its success has to do with the fact that Hussey was overworked while doing it mm -hmm. um, in order to keep up with demand and to make it worth your while to check the website several times a day, um, which is very much of forum culture at a time of the time, you know, mm -hmm. Um, you don't check the forums once a day. Uh, you check it four or five times a day mm -hmm. uh, in order to see like how threads have moved and what's happening. And, you know, the novelty or, or the fun of participating in forums culture was precisely uh, that you would see the same people continuing the same conversation across a day, which I think is a little bit different than what happened on Tumblr or what happens, you know, on Twitter and uh, kind of video based social media now where it's about like when you get on those things, you're, you're in it for the fire hose of content. Mm -hmm. um, whereas for like forum culture in a broad sense, that was more about like seeing the development of some weird thing or like someone said something really, really uh, off the wall and weird and like going and seeing, you know, how people uh, reacted to that. Um, and I think, I mean, we still have pieces of that, right? Like, the the quote unquote Twitter main character mm -hmm. that that is that forum culture appearing again yes or uh, TikTok duetting that is forum culture appearing again in a different form mm -hmm. to watch a thing develop over time but for the most part you know feeds have supplanted the the kind of movement of one singular thing um, mm -hmm. uh, over over time and so 
Homestuck thrived on watching one singular thing develop over a day and you could like check back repeatedly it seems so anyway mm-hmm. that's a, i think an important you know historical contingency to think about mm-hmm. yeah uh so i wanted to just yeah bring that up for precise reasons you said i think this speaks to uh the lay of the land in terms of how people are interacting on the internet but also the fact that hussy is really just doing the fastest possible tap dance here like that's you know just the the amount of work that is going into figuring this stuff out uh is truly astonishing really like i i can i will just say that to think that uh there was this much kind of commitment to the bit uh and and i don't mean that in, in a light way but just in i am going to uh one of the things that hussy has said in other interviews that i've read is that one of the the sort of the background conceits for MSPA specifically uh, starting out was kind of being able to tell a story in kind of the fastest way possible to kind of like produce a large amount of content in a very short amount of time. Uh, And I think, you know, we we are seeing that here. And I think we start to see the effects of that kind of creative overwork of that kind of burnout, uh, especially as we, we go forward. It's kind of unfortunate, you know, back in the day you could create, you know, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show and just do that for a few years and then just coast on it the rest of your life. <laughs> now you make Homestuck, you got to make five pages a day forever. <laughs> so it's like the, the Dick Van Dyke show is the specific thing we're going to contrast this to then. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you can make happy days. What, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> Pick one. I was just wondering, like, I have never seen the Dick Van Dyke show, so I didn't know if there was something like the Dick Van Dyke show was famously, like, sloppily made or something. I don't know. No, not sloppily made. Like uh, The sets a, kept a, a falling be- down behind the actors. No, a beautiful product, but, you know, uh, you, you cash that, that check and then you uh, get residuals for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna put that plug in right now. Go watch the Dick Van Dyke show. It's funny. <laughs> It's a good. It is a uh, good comedy product. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, beautiful performer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, our our first official endorsement is the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, check it out. Uh, yeah. So uh, we obviously there's a lot more to talk about uh, here in in this particular episode. We're going to be reading up to page four hundred and thirty nine. Uh, which is about a little less than half of Act 2, and building off of the tradition that we started last part, uh, I'm going to read a summary. This is going to be a a bit more intense than the last one. Uh, Are you ready, Cameron? I'm ready for it. Okay. Act 2 begins. The introduction of Rose's GameFAQ asserts that Spurb is an apocalypse engine. John, biting the apple, transports his house to a dark void, where it sits atop a pillar of earth over a sea of gray clouds. A strange voice takes over the narrative commands and repeatedly addresses John or makes other bizarre remarks and demands while he explores his house, which John finds in disarray and with his father missing. It is revealed that the wayward vagabond, who we earlier saw uh, against uh, scuttling along the desert, uh, is typing the narrative commands from an underground terminal in the future. When Rose tries to prototype John's sprite to make it more communicative, it accidentally merges with the ashes of his grandmother. 
Seeking to have John help her enter the game and escape the meteors now raining down around her house, Rose accidentally knocks John's dad's car, containing the present from GG as well as his own Spurb server disk, into the clouds below. Rose loses power, and we are suddenly introduced to Turntech Godhead, who is a young man named Dave Strider. In short order, it becomes apparent that with Dave, the narrative has skipped backward in time to approximately the beginning of the comic, which we now see from his perspective. Because of fetch modus bullshit, Dave spills apple juice on his sperb discs and hangs them up to dry in front of a window. A crow flies through the window and grabs them, and then Dave, due to more fetch modus bullshit, throws a katana through the crow, which then crashes through the window, and the discs uh, land in the street below his apartment, meaning he does not have them to help Rose enter the game when John asks later. Dave has a conversation with GG that suggests GG has The Shining as well as an intense grandfather, and uh, needs. she also needs to feed some sort of creature named Beck. In the present, John's house is overrun with horrible little goblins and clown costumes that he learns to fight while Dave searches for his bro's sperb discs. Rose skulks around her darkened house, and we learn about her bizarre relationship with her mother before she makes it to the mausoleum in her backyard, built by her mom, for Rose's dead cat Jaspers. Here, she connects her laptop to a portable generator. John finally meets his grandmother, now a creature called Nana Sprite, who is part his grandma, part jester, and part tutorial NPC for the game. She explains John's father has been kidnapped by the imps, and that John's house is now in a place called The Medium, in a realm known as the Incipisphere. At the center of it all is a place called Skaya, quote, a dormant crucible of unlimited creative potential, unquote, that is the source of conflict between the forces of light and dark, represented as opposite sides of a chess game. While the sides are normally in perpetual stalemate, John prototyping his kernel sprite and entering the game has expanded the medium's possibility space and caused the minions of the realm to take on aspects of the object he prototyped, in this case, uh, the Jester doll. The war has begun, and Nana Sprite explains the forces of light are destined to lose. John's quest, however, is to have his server player build his house upward to reach the series of swirling spirograph gates that have appeared above. John assumes that the point of the game is to save the Earth from being destroyed, and Nana Sprite blithely informs him that, no, Earth is done for and John has a greater destiny, what she calls the ultimate riddle. She heads off to bake him cookies, and then W.V., who has been fiddling with the narrative prompt this entire time off and on, insists John go eat some. John becomes unresponsive to both W.V. and to Rose. W.V. insults John until, in the future, he accidentally opens a hatch in his terminal containing canned goods and a guide to human etiquette. Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> I mean, so I uh, I have kind of a, a list of beats that I want to hit, but just kind mm -hmm. of off the top, like what what was sort of your response to this chunk of the story? Oh uh, uh, well, uh, not as good. Mm -hmm. uh, it is really strange to me that Homestuck can be so funny, and yet such an absolute chore for me to get through. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, like, I... There's so much... Like, especially in, in both this thing that people are listening to and in the next thing that people are going to listen to, we're going to be talking about Dave a lot. Mm-hmm. And I hate Dave. 
I think Davis <laughs> is terrible. I just absolutely do not enjoy him mm-hmm. as a character. And I think that the kind of uh, things that we have to sit through via Dave are so boring, <laughs> like so extremely boring. And so, uh, and, and so there's this weird thing where like, I like like, what, what is it called? The, the Nana ghost? Yeah. What Nana Sprite. The, Nana Sprite. I think the Nana Sprite is delightful. And mm-hmm. when, <laughs> when it's like bebopping around and like uh, like bouncing out of the ground and and uh john egbert can't see it yeah it's like appearing that makes me laugh so hard and it's such a funny joke the idea that like uh th- that what you might think your your assumption this is the kind of brilliance of of hussy i think right because the assumption is that the rule will operate in the way that it operated before which is that there's a sprite and it gets, oh God, prototyped. Is mm-hmm. that the right word? Mm-hmm. It gets prototyped with the the Harlequin doll. And because of that, that's why it looks like a Harlequin. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. So the Harlequin falls out. And so you might think, okay, we're back to just the sprite <laughs> in its like base form because that's how the rule works. No, that's not like the the rule shifts in its application each time, right? It's it's kind of like a game being played with someone who does not respect the rules that they have set up for you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it means that you're like when when the ashes get knocked into it, right? It it becomes like a cr- a clown grandmother. Yes, it's like it's a clown grandmother who has is equally. Like John Eg- Egbert's historical actual grandmother, who is nice and delightful and whatever, and like likes making cookies, it, but also has like the scampy, rude ass energy of a Harlequin, <laughs> and is constantly like playing tricks on John Egbert. And so that to me, like every piece of what I just said there, every stage of that is funny to me. Mm-hmm. Like it is such a beautiful development of the joke and and the concept. And so when I get to Dave and all of the things around Dave, I'm just like, oh, my God, why am I having to sit through this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we get like the whole elaboration of the entire mythopoetic structure <laughs> of the universe, I was like, oh, my God, like this is like watching a Star Trek episode. <laughs> Where, like, I'm just being, like, things about this world that I have no context or interest in inherently on their own are being explained to me, and I'm going to have to remember it. Mm-hmm. Because it definitely won't get explained again. I, yeah, I guess. I mean, based on the, how this has gone so far, it's like, I, I'm having to remember a lot of rules and if-then cases. Mm-hmm. And I totally know, I, I get exactly how this is grabby. You know, we've talked about a lot of, uh, already in the past couple things, we've talked about how this is really proceeding around a, like, public games logic that was in culture in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but, uh, that I mean, that's what's going on here, right? I'm, I'm being expected to remember a lot of details about the world, and I will be rewarded for remembering those details. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's kind of like sunk cost fallacy as design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's exactly what, what is, you know. I, so I read it, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to remember what the hell the incipisphere is. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 I've got a lot in the, my big vibe. Around this so far as uh, the micro movements are half delightful, 
and half just mind-numbing. Mm-hmm. And then the macro movements are, are interesting enough to keep going along, but uh, I wouldn't say that really anywhere in Act 2, anything has really paid off for me. Act, Act 2 feels like a lot of uh, uh, tire spinning. Mm-hmm. What I would say is happening in Act 2, broad strokes, is uh, basically we're, we're getting time to learn more about new characters. Uh, and as mm-hmm. you've already said, one of them is Dave. Uh uh, we'll we'll see whether or not your opinions on Dave evolve. Uh, Dave is a darling in the fan community, is what I will say. Um, you know, every the other thing to keep in mind, I guess, about Homestuck is that literally every character has their uh, kind of adherents, right? Devotees, the mm-hmm. people who in the modern parlance, uh, people who would stand them. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, but uh, it's not it's not all stands are in equal numbers. So, for instance, uh, you know, I think people like John uh, in general, but there's not a, a hardcore like vocal like John block in the Homestuck fandom uh, in the way really? that there is for someone like Dave. I am hardcore for John Egbert. I mm-hmm. think John Egbert is a great character. Mm-hmm. He, is, he is such a. uh like a little weirdo <laughs> and and i just i find him and, and maybe that it is because what we've talked about a couple times where like i can recognize almost like the stock internet userness mm-hmm. of of everyone here and john egbert is the to me the funniest of of like these stock internet characters mm-hmm. um dave is such this like combination of like hipster culture commentary and like qu- and like ironically cool forum user. Yeah. Um I just saw that person too much in the real world. Like I I've seen this human being interacting in the world way too much around the year 2009 mm-hmm. uh, to like really be into it. I went to college with like 10 Daves. Uh, <laughs> and you know, and I think everyone who went to college around like 2008, 2009, 2010, they knew a Dave or two. I yeah, I knew several Daves. I went to a school that I think was kind of known for having a high Dave Rose population is, is what I'll say. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, very much uh, what actually. So the thing that I remember striking me about Dave kind of in reading live, you, you, you talk about how there's the the hipster quality to him yeah uh and that's interesting because one of the things we get in his introduction is something about how you you like to listen you you talk forever about bands that nobody has ever heard of but you Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. like the quintessential late 2000s like hipster thing Uh, yeah dave does not really end up doing this a lot and hussey uh even points that out in in the print commentary that this is actually something it's something that falls by the wayside so the thing that i recognized about dave is that okay this is how people on the internet talk about hipsters Mm -hmm. however dave uh himself is not in any way an actual hipster because I was like, you know, the, the real way of saying that there was a high Dave Rose contingent at my college um, is really that like my uh, my school was like a hipster production factory. Um, <laughs> and like just th- there was and uh, this always struck me about the ways that hipsters got talked about on the Internet. There is a way in which people on the Internet were talking about hipsters uh, where they were clearly making up a type of person to get mad at. 
Uh, oh, a hundred percent. Because <laughs> like I, I can see like the connections between uh, what you say a hipster is and then what the people who are living in this dorm with me who are hipsters. I see the connections. It's like, oh, like the way that Dave is interested in photography or something like that. Uh, but in terms of like actual aesthetics or uh, things mm-hmm. that uh, the hipsters that I knew in real life were deeply interested in, Dave is not. Uh, Dave is his his interests are dominated precisely by kind of the cool boy aesthetic, uh, you know, turntables uh, like the katana thing uh, hipsters would not have katanas, not at my school. Uh, I, well, so, I mean, that's that's uh, an interesting thing about it. Right. Because I, I think you're right. I think that there is this weird, uh, you know, and and like the index for this is something like hipster runoff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like to, to pull a, a people that I went to school with have shown up on hipster runoff is exactly right. right. Like the, 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 the pull from way back is, is, is that kind of like commentary. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. That there's this like kind of person to get mad at. Uh, but, but I, there's something about Dave's like stance toward the world in particular, his, you know, love of irony and ironic appreciation mm-hmm. that I really strongly associate with whatever the actual instantiation of, of quote unquote hipster culture in, you know, the early two thousands was about, which is like, um, committing to the bit, but committing to the bit in such a way that you become like a, uh, um, a, a what do you call it? Like a spokesperson for a culture that you are not a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess to Dave's benefit, uh, or maybe to Dave's brother's benefit, <laughs> uh, he like actually has backed his way into a full adherence to that culture. But, you know, I, I just know I knew so many people who like, um, you know, I ironically appreciated records or people who were like avowed uh, uh, hipster people who like bought audio production equipment and had no way of knowing how to use it mm-hmm. like at all, even a little bit or like uh, buying a bunch of ironic clothing and wearing it and then becoming like a jean shorts guy, mm-hmm. ironically. Uh, and, uh, so, so there is, I think what is great about Dave as a character is that I think you're precisely right that on one hand, he is like this amalgamation of like, uh, f- uh, forum user thoughts about real world and potential hipsters, like all blended together. Mm-hmm. But at his core, I think there is like that real world vibe. Um, and I think this is maybe Hussey's, um, you know, we've, we've talked a few times and, and I've talked a few times about like what Hussey is good at. And I think it is this like making up a guy to get mad at that feels and has qualities of a real world person. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Rose is that person too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that this like, um, I don't think that this exact amalgamation of human being, I mean, I'm sure it does exist in the world, but this exact amalgamation of human being that Rose is, is both like real world people, which is why I accuse you of being a Rose, I think, mm-hmm. in the last one, right? But you're not this exact person. Right. right. Um, it, there's this way that it, it operates both as kernel of truth and as broad internet focused stereotype that I think is really fascinating. But it is that kernel of truth in Dave that I find so annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess what I was sort of getting at, what I, what I was thinking was like, well, if if Dave were truly a hipster, truly a hipster, uh, he would be doing the jean shorts thing because like, yeah, the, exactly right. Like how how Dave's kind of ironic aesthetics tend to uh, surface is something like Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff, which shows up yes. here for the first time. Uh, 
which by the way, uh, if you're on the internet, there's a good chance you know about Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff, but this is still a consistent experience with me. There are people who do not know that Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff comes out of Homestuck or actually predates it technically. Yeah, I think I didn't know. Yeah. I think that I think you were the person who told me that Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff came from Homestuck. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the short sort of origin story behind this is that uh, I've already mentioned that Hussey was on the Penny Arcade forums. Uh, someone uh, posted a thread on those forums, sort of a fan of of PA, and they were like, hey, you know, check out my gaming webcomic. And uh, it was not particularly good. I don't know, you know, anything about this person beyond their username and sort of the posts that they make in the thread, uh, but it looks kind of like it might have been drawn in MS Paint, uh, but it probably wasn't. It looks like it was maybe something better. It's just, it's, it's, it's a person who does not really have, you know, their their skills and their craft down uh, in the ways that I think the webcomic scene especially was starting to uh, demand. There was a time and a place where this person could have just made a comic and posted it on Keenspace, uh, which do you know what Keenspace is or was, Cameron? No. Okay, so Keenspot was a webcomics collective, uh, a sort of early webcomics collective, and it had a whole bunch of titles under its banner. Um, and it had a sort of subsidiary website service called Keenspace, which allowed oh. you to make your own. So the Keenspot brand or like the, the collective, these all had their own individual websites. Keenspace was a platform that Keenspot offered uh, that allowed users to host their own webcomics, kind of like a GeoCities, but just for webcomics. Um, and so you could go to Keenspace and you could find just literally like high school students who really liked web comics, making their own sprite comics or drawing their own kind of basically like what is clearly like their Final Fantasy X reskin where I've like recolored all of the characters or whatever, or redesigned them slightly. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of uh, just sort of, you know, uh, uh, what we might call in, in a bigger, con some maybe somewhat condescending way, like folk art. But like these are people who are amateurs, uh, people who in, in kind of the original sense of like people who love the form, who love the format, who are interested in it and want to experiment with it. Uh, you could just put this stuff up on Keenspace. So this person has posted this thread on the Penny Arcade forum with a comic that, you know, five years earlier, you could have just put it up on Keenspace and five people would have looked at it and, and that's it. Uh, but this user posts their gamer webcomic in the Penny Arcade forums, kind of like, hey, any constructive feedback? And of course, this old school forum culture, this is throwing chum to the sharks. <laughs> the constructive feedback was to turn was to make fun of you so hard that it echoed through culture for the next two decades yes exactly <laughs> so people set in and start mocking uh this comic and the way that it's drawn and in particular like the facial expressions are very very weird uh they're just sort of like they're not communicative of any particular like feeling. Uh, they're just kind of faces that have been drawn and the mouths are kind of strangely shaped. And so Hussey comes into the thread uh, like, you know, 20 posts in and it's just like, hey, here's my web comic that I made. And it's the first Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff comic. And if you have not seen <laughs> Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff, uh, it is uh, Hussey just making the most dog shit awful looking comic that they can uh like instead of 
uh, making a new clean panel and redrawing it, uh, cutting stuff out of an old panel, like copying, pasting an old panel, cutting stuff out or erasing it, uh, resaving it, uh, scaling it up or down, filling it with JPEG artifacts. Uh, all of the dialogue is written in Comic Sans. Uh, the 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 actual comics themselves are kind of incoherent. Uh, the the famous one, of course, is uh, you know I can't wait to be a you know piece big piece of shit all day and play all these video games, and then he falls down a flight of stairs, and then uh, the other guy says, "I I warned you about stairs, bro. I told you, dog." And then the guy just keeps <laughs> falling down the stairs for like twelve panels. It keeps happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that is very interesting, uh, just in general, and it's worth. I think always keeping in mind uh, how Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff, which is going to continue to recur in this comic, but also got kind of its own thing outside of Homestuck proper. People who have never heard of Homestuck have heard about Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff. Uh, how that kind of uh, really gets started also in forums culture and with a, a bit of forums culture that is a, a little mean spirited. Um because I think there's a kernel of something there that is going to echo throughout Homestuck as well. Mm -hmm. Speaking of mean spirited, uh, I wanted to talk about Rose's game fact. Did you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> I, I, I find it uh, very uh, interesting. Maybe uh, is what I'll say. Um, I, I don't. Well, you tell me what you want to say about it and then or, or how you want to how you want to address it. And then uh, we can move our way in there, because I think I have uh, several different opinions that are all in a kind of star shape. OK, so I just want to read a little bit here from uh, the beginning of, of Rose's uh, game fact at the beginning of this act. Um, she has a very long kind of introductory paragraph. Very, very Rose. Very. Here's all these words that I know. Uh, but then she gets to this point. Since you are reading this, chances are you have installed this game on your computer already. If this is true, like many others, you have just participated in bringing about the end of the world. So uh, I am still not at the point in, in sort of the, the reconstructing the timeline here. We are not at the point where Homestuck kind of gets the total buy-in from me or the closest it ever gets from total buy-in. But there are always these little points along the way that uh, I recall as kind of like signals of things that I'm signals of like, Oh, I'm really interested in like this specific thing. And so I'm going to keep reading. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that comes out of this act that is particularly important to me is uh, when Nana explains that uh, earth is finished Mm -hmm. Like the earth has been like the earth has ended, like the apocalypse has happened and it doesn't really matter to her or to the game or to any of the other stuff. Uh, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the point of this, because, you know, I, I had kind of the same sort of reaction that John has, which is like, oh, OK, so the point of the game is to like beat the game in such a way that you're going to, you know, defeat whatever bullshit is going on that that is currently destroying the earth through a meteor shower. Uh, and so John has that sort of read on it. And then Nana's like, oh, no, no, Earth is done for. Uh, we're going to do something else. So that plus like looping back to Rose here, uh, Rose 
you already mentioned that that Rose and I have some similarities, and so maybe some of this is is what's coming through here, particularly with her uh, her interests. Uh, Rose apprehends the game as essentially a kind of. Uh, in, in the more common term would be a Lovecraftian entity. Uh, but the term that I would use, because I don't think we need to place Lovecraft at the center of this kind of talk, would be something more like a, a cosmic horror entity, uh, a, a thing that has come to end the Earth and has basically already succeeded, a thing that cannot be resisted. Uh, and that's, you know, there's a particular framing there and it's all the stuff loaded in, but uh, sort of philosophically, this was very interesting to me to think of like, oh, OK, what if, you know, Cthulhu wakes, but it's not a big like octopus dragon monster underneath the sea. It's this uh, weird, opaque game system that is literally uh, like chewing up reality, like destroying the world, you know, and pulling you into this other world uh, where like things have a logic, but it's not a straightforward logic. Uh, all of this stuff, is, like reality is kind of being reformatted by this encroaching force. Uh, and that was very interesting to me and sort of moving forward. Uh, I'll probably throughout the show, like throw out these little ideas that I'll, you know, return to or, or touch on to to illustrate what this or that point. Um, I don't think Rose is terribly incorrect in, in her way of apprehending this game. Uh, to, to give some, I guess, sense of like where my homestuck reading is going to go or places where I it, uh, am thinking about taking it as we work through the comic. I mean, there's a lot of uh, rhyme here or uh, I don't know, resonance with something like Eric Zimmerman's Ludic Century, mm -hmm. you know, right? Like the future is coming on and the thing that defines the world for the next thousand years or whatever, and I guess the next hundred years for him, but uh, for the next infinity and in Homestuck is this weird game relation uh, that unites everything and kind of gamically logics everything together. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to think about that Homestuck is kind of, uh, it, it's getting ahead of the curve a little bit in that way, but it is dramatizing something that is really talked about quite seriously by lots of different people mm -hmm. um, in the kind of gamification or um, uh, incentivizing fields, you know, like incentivized design, whatever we, we call that, right? So like daily quest design and battle, mm -hmm. you know, what Daniel Joseph calls battle pass capitalism, you know, the, this um, this system of game systems or modes of uh, in uh, modes of getting you to engage that come out of games kind of appearing everywhere in the world. Um, and so, you know, what if the apocalypse was engineered in the same way mm -hmm. uh, is, is kind of what you're, you're saying here. I think that's right. I, I think that, I think I get a little tired of reading Rose's prose style. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, 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 I do uh, like when uh, Dave like gets tired of it too. Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think that's funny. Uh, but, um, but I get a little tired of that, but, I, but I, I mean, I guess what's partially interesting to me too, about the game, the game facts kind of stuff that's going on here is that the problem that appears here is how to get from the pre-apocalypse world to the post-apocalypse world mm -hmm. to like unite everyone in the same physical or metaphysical space. 
Um, because the implication is there's like a pre and post apocalypse and that those are like self-contained spaces. And so she is looking for, she wants John initially to get the, the server, uh, or what uh, is it host? I can't remember. Now. Uh, the, the server and client is what they're called. Yeah. Server. Okay. I couldn't remember if it's host and client or, mm-hmm. or server and client. Uh, she wants him to be host for her and uh, can't do that because that discon- the disconnects and the car just mm-hmm. bloops right off. I love that. I love every single time that there's a joke about dropping something. It's <laughs> it's, it's all good. But um, And then trying to get Dave to do that, too, is kind of the next step there. But uh, But there's this idea that, like, as long as you go through the proper steps in the game FAQ, as long as you can reproduce the conditions that get you, that get you there... Uh, then you can change the world in whatever way you want. And I, f- I find that fascinating that what if game facts c- contain the instructions for uh, how to change your life? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something really, really fascinating there, especially if you've ever sat and read a bunch of, of game facts, which have these kinds of things in it. They often have like, uh, especially from the time period, they'll have long unrelated sections about the game in them, especially ones that are not rated five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, go and go and read some like low star rated game FAQs and you're going to find like motivational things and like life philosophy and all kinds of weird stuff in it. So it's interesting to take the culture of game facts and like the the deep knowledge of how that works and then apply that to what if <laughs> what if that was the structure of a game and then you could use that to play a game that ended the world. Mm hmm. Um, uh, so I, what we, what we've already established is like a bunch of different meta layers Mm -hmm. of both of commentary and of the product itself of Homestuck that Homestuck is a game within a game within a, a web platform that we know exists that talks to another game within it. Yes. Um, and so I'm sure there's like great maps of this that make your brain hurt. (laughs) Um, but but we get a taste of it already here. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, and there's a lot of, I mean, if we're speaking about like layers, uh, one thing to talk about uh, kind of here at the beginning is that Act 2 begins with our first, uh, what are going to be called walk-around flashes uh, in, in kind of the receptive community of Homestuck. So walk-around flashes are flash pages, which we've seen thus far, but they've mostly been about animation and music. The walk-arounds are interactive allow you to take control of a character and move about a space from the comic and look at objects and eventually we're going to get to walk arounds where you can you know talk to other characters and things like that uh but here the first walk around that we see is just john walking around his house once he's entered the medium uh followed by the clown sprite uh and as i already said like you you can look at all these things and you get these weird uh observations or like commands about them written in all caps a kind of new character's voice which we learn is the the voice of the wayward vagabond uh who is watching all of this happen and who is the one like typing commands into john's head uh did you have any sort of like particular reaction to the walk around did it strike you as interesting in any way or no not really Mm -hmm. Just to be frank. Yeah, I, I sort of expected that, I think, because uh, it is the it is the sort of thing that does not blow your mind in the way that it did when it first happened, when you're kind of like, yeah. oh, the comic's actually going to go here. Uh, 
because, you know, actually giving me the chance to control a character and move them around the space. Uh, this walk around is very simple, but what it does uh, in terms of fandom. So people see this walk around flash and immediately people are losing their minds because they think eventually like we are going to get to like build John's house. Like that is just a, a sort of like uh, and it's not, you know, everyone, but there is definitely yeah. like there are people who are reading this comic who see this walk around and they're like, oh, shit, this is going to eventually fold into something that is fully interactive. Hussey never says that the story is going to become fully interactive. Uh, like Hussey is actually very clear that the the interactive segments are more for kind of novelty or to establish a, a certain tone or to, you know, you know, for a certain joke or whatever, uh, rather than any sort of plans for, you know, full interactability or customization. Um, nevertheless, nevertheless, people see this stuff and then they immediately extrapolate outward into what it is going to mean for the future. Yeah, I, I mean, it kind of felt like uh, when looking at it, it was like, oh, you, you kind of have to be here because it's like it is such a like a, a, a hint or a tease that something more impressive or, or different could be here. And it's also the kind of thing where. I think that if I were reading it at the time, I would. I I don't know if I would assume that you could play Spurb, but I would assume that we're moving from one type of adventure game to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, like the point and click world, and it actually really doesn't even get there. Even with the interactive segments that we have uh, in this, it doesn't really get to the point of of what I would say like a point and click adventure game is doing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is. It is, I guess, interesting in a, in a broad sense. There, though. Yeah. So the other thing, I guess, to uh, talk about, and weirdly enough, this does not show up in any clear way in the comic, uh, like as you're reading it as as an archive, uh, even though it was very important in the moment uh, on early MSPA, when you submitted a command, uh, you did it basically as a comment to a blog post. So every page that came up, there was like, uh, you know, it was built on kind of a, a blog. The website was built on an old, uh, I think, blog architecture. Every new page, you would submit a command by clicking uh, at the bottom of the image, and then you would have basically just it was the comment section for that post. But that's how you would submit your commands when the meteor hits John's house at the end of act one, the comment box or the command box uh, got exploded. So when you hmm. were on the website, if you clicked through to post a command, uh, you just saw a picture of a crater in the ground. And over the next couple days, as kind of the adventure continued to play out with uh, WV uh, giving commands, uh, you would see over time, that crater slowly, uh, you know, the, the ground around it, like drying out, like it filling with sand, like slowly morphing into the desert post apocalypse that we've already seen WV um, hiking across. So that's one thing that is happening here. And one thing that I think is really important that you would not get necessarily a sense of uh, if you're reading this uh, in an archive is that all of that uh, reader command stuff that's happened up until now gets shut off for this entire hmm. time that WV is talking to John. And in fact, every time uh, WV shows up and gives a command, that is Hussey uh, bumping into the narrative to do something. But really what the narrative is about is this character 
coming back to their command station and trying to give more commands to the characters in the comic. So there are kind of these two uh, plot lines happening in parallel to one another. Uh, and once the once the kids come back, like once Rose and Dave are around, that's when we go back to reader commands, uh, which Hussey migrates from the comments on blog posts to uh, the actual like specific threads in the forums. Mm. Yeah, you can feel it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it. It is interesting. I, I assume that something had or I, I didn't know if they I didn't know they'd been shut off. That's actually really interesting that there is a formal transformation in the website architecture essentially to to do that um that, that that's super interesting i just assumed that maybe they were being ignored or something mm -hmm. uh because it's so clear right that you know i and i really like when the what was it got the wandering vagabond vagrant what is it uh, i mean just Vag wv is vagabond. what we're going to call him forever but you can call him just call him the vagabond uh, I, I think, uh, the vagrant is from, uh, Dark Souls. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting confused. Uh, the furtive pygmy here, but, um, the, <laughs> we're going to call him the furtive pygmy from this point forward. The, the, the furtive vagabond, vagabond, <laughs> uh, the, uh, but what's interesting about it. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's very clear. And like when it starts typing, it's like, boy, boy, pick up whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like how, how direct it is. And, and the, the joke that happens that we'll talk about, I think in, in uh, next time is uh, the joke that happens with the, uh, guide to etiquette is very funny. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way the pace changes in reading it now in the archive where it's like, Oh yeah, it's clipping. We're clipping along. Like things are happening with John Egbert, and like uh, obviously he's getting commands from something else on the planet, and that's interesting. What's going on here, right? Like the 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 mode of storytelling is changing, and but when Dave shows back up, and we're back to user commands, it's really clear because good God, we're just picking stuff up and like destroying <laughs> things and like going up and down, and it just slows to an absolute crawl. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there are some really good jokes that are in there. Uh, I can't, I, uh, I mean, the, the, the panel where Dave accidentally throws the katana through the crow and then the crow flies <laughs> through the window and Dave has that reaction shot where he just like has his hand <laughs> against his mouth in the most delicate, dainty way. And the caption is no one must ever know about this. That the the one where he uh, I does uh, the puppet show up here yet? The uh, named puppet? No, no, that's so. gonna be that's gonna be next time. Um, but okay. we talk a little bit about puppets. The but the the uh, the shot I guess for next time the shot where he is uh, fist bumping that puppet and he's having to hold the hand up like that that's beautiful visual comedy that doesn't feel like you know, user command done, or maybe it's prompted by it, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that the reaction shot to it is something that Hussey is coming up to. Like those are high points here, but for the most part, it's like, good God, like, yep, you surely can do all kinds of stuff in this room. Y'all like it. I'm sure that feels like fun to do. <laughs> um, I, I, you're really moving the plot along. Um, but, but, and so that's an interesting, I guess, um, affect or emotion here, right? Is that, for someone at the time, it would have been delightful mm -hmm. to see like the commands and which commands uh, the author is choosing and how those those happen. Like that would be really fun. But reading it now, years later, that's not particularly interesting because I know that at some point, you know, in, in game design language, we are going to hit a pinch point 
that will bring us to the next plot-based thing. And I know that the next plot-based thing is coming because Homestuck is a famous work of art. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Like, my my um, I, uh, desire to get to that next uh, kind of important maneuver overwhelms any delight I would have at the moment-by-moment the moment stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the other thing that's important about Dave is that he gets on his computer and he goes to MSPaintAdventures.com uh, and checks out yes. the new adventure that's going on there. Well, so I didn't check. Is this real or is this like a fake thing that Hussey made to exist for Dave to look at? <laughs> so uh, it is uh, the answer is a fake thing that uh, Hussey made for Dave to look at. But there's a story here that is mm. uh, interesting. So these are characters who showed up in Problem Sleuth but not in Problem Sleuth proper in those reader commissioned pages that I mentioned before. Oh. So uh, during Problem Sleuth, one of the uh, fans um, who went by the handle at the time, uh, Mayonaka, paid Hussey, uh, commissioned uh, them to have characters from a, I think, tabletop set. Well, I know it was a tabletop session. I was going to say D&D, &D, but I'm not sure if that was necessarily the case. These were kind of these were the years where I feel like if you were playing tabletop stuff, unless you were like deep into it, you were probably playing D&D. &D. Um, but anyway, characters from a tabletop session uh, and the characters were, you know, the Midnight Crew, a kind of group of, uh, you know, mafioso types uh, and how uh, the the reader kind of commissioned this was, you know, they, they paid their money to Hussey and was like, hey, can my OCs show up and, and meet the problem sleuth people? And Hussey, uh, who did not get a whole lot of direction on these characters, was like, OK, and then basically wrote them into these panels as kind of uh, the way to describe how the, the Midnight Crew looks is they look like an evil version of the problem sleuth main cast. Because the Problem Sleuth main cast is, you know, it's th three like dudes and then they get like three complimentary ladies uh, later on. And they're drawn in the the MSPA house style, which is to say these kind of slightly more than elaborate stick figures, uh, you know, round heads, uh, no arms. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're they're black lines on white. They look like they're being drawn on paper or scribbled in MS paint. Uh the Midnight Crew shows up and they are kind of like, you know, the, the same sort of thing, uh, but they are, you know, darker uh, and they have like, you know, black magic or something that they use in the uh, the Problem Sleuth pages. The reason that this gets ported forward is that I already mentioned there were people who were reading the the kind of fan requested commands. They like these characters and people who are not uh, the original creator start paying Hussey to like continue this plot line where the Midnight Crew shows up in Problem Sleuth and they like meet the main villain and they I think they either convince the main villain of Problem Sleuth to join them or he like takes over their their little outfit or something. Um, so, you know, it's it's not terribly long it's not as long as problem sleuth but there there's like a whole little like sub story that happens here with the midnight crew in problem sleuth and the for whatever reason these characters were so beloved that for a while before homestuck uh starts hussy thinks that the next adventure might be a midnight crew adventure 
So once Homestuck does start and we have someone who goes to the MSPA website, uh, it turns out what is happening is the Midnight Crew adventure and it's very problem sleuthy. So like they've been like they have plans for their heists and they've been stuck to the table by a dagger. And then the command is like Spade Slick, use Occam's razor on schemes and plans. And what this means is that Spade Slick, who's the leader of the Midnight Crew, uh, just cuts the circle out like completely <laughs> ruining the piece of paper. Like that's a very problem sleuthy type thing. And then of course Dave gets bored and skips forward like a thousand pages or something. And it's the characters in the exact same room, except it's been totally destroyed and they're all like whacking each other with clubs. Yes. That joke is very funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's where the midnight crew kind of comes in and gestures uh, to another way in which uh, even at this point, uh, you know, Homestuck is something that is being marked by the influence of readers, of fans, even if it's Hussey kind of like taking on these characters as their own thing. Uh, these characters don't exist without that initial uh, uh, commission, right? Uh, in the same way that one of the other things that I learned because you asked uh, again in a previous episode, uh, you know, how much of this is planned and how much isn't. Uh, another thing mm -hmm. that I learned, Hussey was talking after the end of Act Two, uh, you were on the money that most of the game mechanics were planned ahead. Uh, that was all kind of, you know, locked and loaded. Uh, but something that I was very surprised to learn uh, is that the apocalypse thing was not planned. Like that came up organically uh, as kind of the end of Act One came, came into place so that was something that was added just sort of emergently to the story as uh, it went on and everything and for something that has such a profound effect on all the stuff that comes after it is really interesting to think about how that you know wasn't really a part of the story until suddenly it was yeah and especially because that didn't come about because of any user input mm-hmm Right, like that, like that almost feels like it's shoehorned in you know, <laughs> around around user input. If there's anything that I would have thought was kind of pre-planned out, it was that you know these machines will produce the apocalypse. But mm -hmm. uh, that's a pretty pretty bizarre. Um, I'm trying to look at my notes here. Oh, uh, something you know we've talked a, a little bit or maybe a lot actually at this point. Uh, about the way that this is very much in, in in communication with a certain like style of writing or a mode of writing. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is like this repeated um, uh, uh, attributing mis mis per comically misattributing things to like famous historical figures. Mm -hmm. uh, these like quotations and things like that. I, another thing that's interesting that's kind of popped up here is when I think John is reading asshole notes. Yes. <laughs> about data structures <laughs> data structures um, for assholes yeah data, data structures for assholes uh you know which is like the for dummies mm -hmm. you know books uh or the complete idiot's guide to that's the other one but the way that those are written is weirdly enough not written like those things but they're written like the other kind of popular parody stuff of the time and i'm thinking here about uh real ultimate power mm -hmm. uh uh, or uh, the zombie survival guide, mm -hmm. uh, which both had massive effects on like nerd culture at the in the early two thousands of you know like ninjas are cool, pirates are cool, even though those are that that kind of only barely shows up in real ultimate power, um, and then like 
the the absolute commitment to the bit that is the zombie survival guide that like blows up into you know i think is really really heavily um responsible for like the zombie phenomenon in the early 2000s and on into today and the way that the the complete assholes guide or whatever the way that it uh commits to the bit of the um of like the form of the for dummies book but with this additional kind of comedic layer to it that's exactly how these other books are written and there was so much blog writing and like comedy website writing on like you know like cracked.com was this mm -hmm. something awful front page was this even something like maddox yeah um you know uh, the ultimate the best page in the universe or whatever all of that kind of stuff which, which was like you know a cornerstone of internet comedy in the early 2000s all of that is influenced by and influencing the you know these kind of I don't know, guide style books uh, that, that are playing with that format. And so th that feels like this feels like a really direct nod to that kind of thing and really contextualizes for me the way some of those thematics or um, parody stuff shows up in Homestuck already, too. It seems like Hussey is really uh, engaged with that kind of writing style. Mm -hmm. No, very much so. I when I was reading it, I was thinking like, oh, this is like this is so of that time. Like this, mm -hmm. this feels like a something awful front page update in, in its way. Yeah. And that, I don't think that style of writing has gone away. It's just changed mediums. You know, it's the, the parody Twitter account. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's the same impulse, right. Of like, take the form, mimic the form, but change the content. And the, the, the ultimate form of that is something like Joker's trick, I think, yes. which is like the ironic, approach to the format of the parody right uh, right or you know the parody of the format i guess right. joker's trick um, which feels like an account dave would make exactly joker's trick is definitely you know a dave style account and so many of these like kind of uh, parody account things they are just transformation of like the dave style character that something awful posters we're doing on something awful forums and then move to Twitter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like there was a, there's a big cast of characters who have, uh, you know, thousands of followers on Twitter that you have to deal with regularly. Um, you know, you, the, the Twitter user, I promise you they're being retweeted into your timeline. They're dumb jokes. It's just, you know, their FYAD characters. I Daveified <laughs> into a different form. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, and Dave very much feels like that kind of person too. Maybe this is another place uh, to talk about Dave here because we get a lot more of Dave, obviously, here. Mm -hmm. And a lot more of, like, Dave's annoying forum poster, like, genre commentary. So, like, for example, his uh, constant talking about black presidents. Yeah. Um, and, and talking about Barack Obama being elected, uh, removing the black president from uh, like apocalypse films or just from movies in general. Mm -hmm. um, and and he says specifically that he feels like uh, talked down to or insulted by the, like the reveal of a black president mm -hmm. uh, in these movies. And so he gives this like long, like pseudo comedic um, treatise on this. But this is very much like a poster's argument yes yeah i it, uh, it, it, i was reading it i'm like this feels like reading a movie forum this feels like reading cinema discusso <laughs> um and and i that's what's really funny it's there's kind of this ineffable quality to it because i don't know quite what i mean by that um there's a kind of like picking an argument and playing it to the bone 
that from like a position of authority, but but hidden behind complete anonymity, I guess. Mm-hmm. For me, I think what what does that there's something about like the way that the person, right, the poster here, uh, Dave, mm-hmm. in this case, takes a kind of a cultural thing that's just sort of floating in the air, uh, like a thing that's just sort of happening and then being like, here is how this personally insults me. And I'm going to just explain to you like why it is why it is condescending to me (laughs) when there is a black president in a film. Uh, There's this bizarre way that uh, on the one hand, the person is capable of like looking at the world, uh, but on the other hand, can only talk about the world sort of in relation to themselves and has to act like uh, everything that is happening in popular culture is some sort of like specific, not not like coded message, but like uh the the way that i am feeling or processing or reacting to it uh is the thing that determines it like there like that is kind of the most important thing like my own kind of empiricism uh and then taking that and then acting like that's just like grounds for extrapolation about anything well it's also kind of like i i think there's that and i think that's that's part of the phenomenon but the other one is like one does not get a sense that Dave actually believes this. Right. There's this kind of like, it's not quite devil's advocacy because this isn't the form of the argument, but it's almost like, let me take something that on face is patently ridiculous to say. Mm -hmm. Right. For, for just a random person say, and which is not to say that you can't feel insulted, I guess, by there being black presidents, but that's one might say that is an odd position to take in a general sense Mm -hmm. that that is on face insulting. Um, it's it's taking this thing that is a slightly off kilter from any kind of like normal response to watching the film Deep Impact, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and then making that the core of the aesthetic experience and then just playing it for as long as you can. And it almost feels like like in forums culture, when you read that kind of thing, it was the kind of thing where a mod would eventually have to step in because it would so severely derail any kind of conversation happening around it. Yeah. Um, because you can't read that. It, and, and, you know, this is something that happens on Twitter all the time. Uh, so it's not like this has gone away, but like you read something that is so on face ridiculous. And I think I've gotten much better about this, but there was a time when I, when I wasn't. Uh, and I think there was a time when many people weren't that you feel like you need to be like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And on a forum, there's not 140 characters, you know, at the time or, or, you know, 280 characters to make that response short. And so in, when this kind of like weird argument happens in a forum, you end up with people writing thousands of words all in a whack that are like defending or arguing this particular point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and on something like the something awful forums, this always ended in a ban, uh, this kind of thing. But, but it's the, this kind of like, Pranksterish relationship to reading the object um, that that I really associate with a particular kind of posting culture, um, mm-hmm. and and but but and, and the thing I was saying about anonymity before is it's like I don't think very many people would do this if they didn't have the ability to just like let it go and never have to think about it again. Um, it does seem that like that this is almost entirely the argumentative form of people who never have to. Uh, 
deal with the implications of doing or of having said something so strange <laughs> in their life. Yeah. I mean, so a really great example of this from the something awful forums that I think about just constantly a thing that happens. Is it super mecha Godzilla? It is not super mecha Godzilla. Although <laughs> super mecha Godzilla is a great example of a lot of things. <laughs> um, sorry if you were not on the SA forums to know. <laughs> That's going super mecha Godzilla is going to come up multiple times. I'm sure over the Homestuck show, so yeah. it'll be fine. There's a little a little uh, breadcrumb for someone down the in line. the Homestuck thread. At a certain point, we were like, "Could we get super mecha Godzilla to read Homestuck?" <laughs> <laughs> Um, of course. But anyway, uh, this was not SMG. This was someone else. Uh, and it was in the horror movie thread in, in the movie sub forum. And I remember at one point I said sort of offhandedly in response to some other kind of query or, or you know, topic of conversation. I like made the very light uh, claim, uh, not a whole lot of weight behind it. Didn't even particularly think about it because it just seems so obvious to me um, that Jaws is... Uh, you know, Jaws has a Jaws, the Steven Spielberg film has a lot going on, but mm -hmm. it's at least partly a kind of very, you know, accessible horror film. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, did you, did you have a response to that, Cameron? No, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, a foundational horror film, uh, like big budget horror film. And it also kind of establishes the thriller, mm -hmm. which I would call an accessible horror film genre. Sure. Yeah. That seems very safe. Right. It's like it's it's a horror film, but it's like it's a horror film you can watch with your family. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I sort of, you know, just made that kind of uh, claim in passing for whatever reason. Someone in that thread uh, replied to my post and like went off the rails and derailed the thread for like 10 pages because uh, they responded and they were like, what are you talking about? Jaws cannot be a horror film. And the reasoning was, I shit you not, because sharks are real. <laughs> and so this is this is exactly, you know, what you're getting at, I think, with like sort of in yes, how we yeah. can work with Dave and kind of the layers of irony, uh, which is like, on the one hand, this is a form of argument that you can kind of just pull out and like you can start making these arguments because this is what happened is that this person was like, Jaws can't be a horror film because sharks are real. Like, sharks are real creatures, therefore Jaws cannot be a horror movie. Uh, and people were like, dude, what are you talking about? Uh, and, of course, like, this guy just digs in for the next 10 pages, like, drilling down on the fact that for it to be a horror film, and, of course, this is the horror movie thread, for it to be a horror film, there has to be some sort of, like, impossible element to it. And all of these people are responding. They're like, what about, you know, this movie about just a serial killer? Like, are serial killers, like, <laughs> imaginary? Do they not count for horror movies? Uh, and so it just totally derails the thread. And I cannot, like, it does not make a whole lot of sense for that person to be, like, an irony poster who just came in to, like, start shit in that thread. But it, it does speak, I think, to what you were saying about, like, I don't actually, like, I can make kind of an off-the-fly argument without having to think about the implications of it. And then when people press me on that, I'm just going to, like, never admit that I was, like, wrong or hasty or that I've overlooked something because I have now decided in, in kind of a very arbitrary way for the purposes of this thread that I have tied my entire identity to the fact that Jaws cannot be a horror movie. 
Yeah, and it's playful, and and that gets weaponized, I guess, too, right? Like, I guess one could theoretically take that position, and I guess that you could do that, and who knows if this person is or not, right? But I think within forum culture, the organic way that that kind of thing appeared quickly became weaponized Mm -hmm. as a, like, trolly kind of maneuver, and that's the kind of person that Dave is. Yes. Right, he's that, like, weaponization of... The Jaws. Jaws is not a horror movie because of it. And here's the thing. Like, this is uh, something that's interesting, right? We still live in that. We live in a world in which someone tweeted, you know, fairly recently in the the grand timeline of things that horror can't take place in space. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and that person, if you read the tweet and you read, like, the follow-up tweet, like, they were being a little bit playful, right? Like, this was not something that was a like grand statement about genre, but people pick that up and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of those people are like, you know, the Twitter dunk class of, <laughs> of people who like, that's their whole day. And they, they spend all day like clowning on one person uh, for marginal gains. And then the other, uh, and then the other group were people who like just took that and played it to the bone. And they were like, yeah, that's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. And those people, for the most part, I, I don't, I don't think very many people really honestly believe that, but it is a fun thing to do as this kind of game, right, of of playfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a little bit of a reference to the uh, this the spiritual um, uh, titling of the show, you know, <laughs> that Homestuck made this world. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't, until you put it as a game, I didn't think about this. Uh for, for this type of poster, right? Uh, argumentation is fun for its own sake. And so that's why you can argue about the stupidest things in the world, because the fun is being like, well, how do I just consistently rationalize my opinion that uh, sharks are real? Therefore, Jaws is not a horror movie. Sophistry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was a long thing. Um, what do you think about this? Uh, the, some of the things Dave says. Uh, well, he says a this lot. quote that's in the show doc. This is from Dave, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, his like so Dave's ironic bad raps, uh, where he yeah. extols kind of like the the virtues of the black president, yep. specifically talking about uh, uh, like the Morgan Freeman character in Deep Impact and all this stuff. Like, it's a uh, it's doing what we've talked about before, which is kind of like the ironic racism of like uh, get like getting up to the edge of like talking about race in a way that is sort of uh, vague or obtuse. Uh, like I'm I'm going to talk about like race, but only through the media image of the black president in a film. And then I'm going to make this rap about that. Uh, and it's just. It's 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 a sort of humor, very 2009, uh, that wasn't cool in in where it it, it, when it came about. Um, But I think was very much like of the comedy ecosystem of these sorts of corners of the Internet. Uh, Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is much like, you know, we were talking about kind of like R word jokes Uh last time and like the way that that was just part of the DNA of comedy. Uh, this like, um, I, I, it's almost like white people trying to do almost Chappelle show style jokes. Yes, that is. Yes, that's exactly how it feels because, uh, you know, obviously if we talk about 
the the trope of the black president in cinema. Like, that's a real thing. That's not something that, like, Hussey has made up for this comic or observed for this comic or something Dave is making up. Um, the if, if we scale this back, like, 100 years, take this back to Colonel Sassaker's time, uh, this, yep. it would be like if uh, Dave were trying to make a self-aware joke about, like, a mammy character or something. Yeah. Basically. It's a stock, it is a racialized stock character in American culture. Right. Um, and the the racialized stock character in the 19th century is different, right? You know, the, the stereotype character. Um, but, uh, and, and obviously, you know, well written on uh, in uh, academic work, certainly. But yeah, absolutely. The, the black president as one of those stock characters at the end of the 90s in particular is, is uh, 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 you know, an auxiliary version of that for sure. Mm -hmm. And I would also say like uh, the Dave's mm -hmm. kind of uh, the guff that he takes the idea that uh, like it was because Obama is president. Now Obama shows up in like the first three uh, sweet bro and hella Jeff comics. Uh, one of the things Dave says is that because Obama is president, like uh, we've sort of outstripped the speculative imagination. Mm hmm. That's kind of like one of the weird critiques he's trying to make, which is just it's a weird thing to say. Yeah, I, I don't uh, I think that, you know, I think it's meant to be funny mm -hmm. and I think it it, it is uh, coherent with what comedy was then. Right. But you know, when we're talking about all of this and about like things that work and don't work in this, especially around comedy, and I'm sure we're very funny at the time. Um, it, but you know, in 2021 reading an ironic rap from anyone is, um, uh, so that, that well has been so, uh, run dry in any kind of way that it's, uh, you know, just, it st produces stone nothing, but you know, it's kind of like what Seth Rogen said recently about comedy, you know, uh, because there's been this kind of question recently about like how much responsibility should comedians have for jokes they've told or jokes that they have said in the past and like jokes they've done. Um, you know, very kind of famously, I guess Eddie Murphy has apologized for a lot of the content that's mm -hmm. in his comedy specials from the eighties because they are, um, I mean, at the time, uh, if you were, you know, if you are a gay man, for example, deeply, deeply offensive. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly now it's very difficult to watch those, um, uh, and, and see the humor in it. But, you know, and so there's been this kind of question in the comedy world about that recently. And Seth Rogen, I think said something very sensible recently where he just says, look, jokes don't age well, right? Like they are about culture of a very particular moment and they don't, they don't exist outside of that cultural moment. So when culture changes, a joke changes, um, and the way that that joke lands changes. And, um, I think that like leaves open this kind of question of, culpability or like how much responsibility you should have. I don't know about that one way or the other, but I do think that, you know, I, I don't think it is a outrageous thing to say that like the joke doesn't work, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, from the perspective of where we sit now. Um, and so I think we're going to see based on the humor that we've seen so far in Homestuck, I think that might keep happening. So if you're hearing this and you are deeply offended on behalf of, uh, Andrew Hussey, um, sorry, mm. uh, you know, uh, but uh, like everyone else who existed in culture in 2009, so did Andrew Hussey. Mm -hmm. And uh, the jokes, I uh, just don't think land so much. And they come off as racist. Mm -hmm. um, just straight up. I, I don't think that um, I, I th some of the things that Dave says here are bad. Yep. Just just not good. Uh, things that I think age much better. Personally, Rose's entire deal with her mother. 
That's pretty wild. I don't. I kind of don't know what to do with it. Uh, this deep rivalry that that Rose has with her mother. Oh, you know, just one really uh, quick thing before we talk about Rose and her mother, because I feel like this is going to be a deep thing we talk about. Uh, we we occasionally get some shots of uh, John Egbert's dad fighting with the like imps and gremlins running around, mm-hmm. and that's very funny. To mm-hmm. me. I laughed really hard at. at uh, john's dad fighting with a cake mm-hmm. and like having to attack these these imps that are running around i, I really thought that was great it's good but yeah rose's relationship with her mother who uh, only collects wizard paraphernalia and wizard statues in order to torment her daughter yeah there's like rose goes downstairs and there's a 20 foot tall stone wizard statue in her living room <laughs> What's it? Oh, I have it written down. Uh, Zazerpan the Learned. Yeah, Zazerpan. <laughs> yep. Um, uh-huh. And what I love about this is that, you know, Rose goes downstairs and she sees this. And then, like, the panel, like, the reaction panel we get is, like, Rose with her eyes narrowed, just, like, incandescent with rage <laughs> about this gigantic wizard statue. Um, uh, there's also, like... Uh, this sort of like weird war of passive aggression, like the uh, the bronzed vacuum cleaner, or rather, I think it's not bronzed at first. That's part of the the thing, isn't it? It still works, but it is bronze. It was a gift that Rose bought for her mother, and her mother uh, ironically bronzed it. But it also still turns on, so she can just run it, yeah, <laughs> regularly to like rub it in Rose's face. Uh, there's also, what I really like here is that the structural similarity of parents, you know, we've already, already talked about that a little bit in one of the previous recordings, but, uh, that, uh, you know, Rose is introduced in the same way that John Egbert is introduced with the room and all this kind of context, but, uh, going downstairs and seeing that there's a giant doll Mm -hmm. that, that Rose's mother has also purchased for her, that Rose has turned into like a Cthulhu style, you know, um, almost like a mind flayer looking thing. Mm-hmm. That's very funny to me. I, I laughed about that a lot. Yeah. Oh, and a, a fun little fact uh, about the parents or sort of the parent figures, because obviously a uh, bro is not a parent. Uh, these have their own name kind of within the Homestuck lexicon. And I'm not sure when it's going to show up in the comic itself. Uh, but what I've noticed in reading old threads is that people are already using kind of this term for these characters, which is the guardians. And the reason that is the case is because uh, already people are asking questions about like the lore of this universe on the forums and Hussey is answering. Mm -hmm. Hussey is kind of doing that in real time where people are asking on the forums like what's going on and Hussey is just being like, oh yeah, they're called the guardians. Like that's, that's sort of like my term for uh, these, this, Uh, this set or class of characters. That's interesting. Uh, The other thing that is uh, relevant here then is that in the previous episode, I mean, part, uh, I accidentally told you that Gigi is a girl. Um, Yeah. uh, Well, actually it was about this point that everyone knew because the forum speculation over who GG was going to be was getting so sort of like annoying and obnoxious that uh hussy had to step in and be like, it's, it's a, it's, it's a 13 year old girl. 
Like, that's who Gigi is. Wow. Because there were people who were talking about. Um, so this is going to be the other fun part of me, you know, reading all of these old threads is like recuperating mm-hmm. fan theories that turned out to be extremely incorrect or wrong or just bizarre. Uh, like there was a contingent of people who thought that Gigi was going to turn out to be Dave's bro, for example. Oh, no way. <laughs> With all this puppet pornography, no way. <laughs> Gigi is, is way too friendly. <laughs> yeah. And non-ironic. Well, you see, that's all that's all that's all part of the act. Uh, mm-hmm. so uh just so th- there's there's that that's going on. Uh mom, uh Rose's mom, one of the guardians. Uh the th- the one that I really like is Rose goes into the kitchen and Rose has spelled out using the magnetic letters on the fridge the word shrew, but there were no W's, so she spelled shrew with two V's. And then her mother, upon seeing that, uh, seeing that there were no W's, bought an entire pack of magnetic W's. And then uh, Rose wrote a thank you note or something uh, that she put underneath that and had it like fully notarized. And then because it was so low on the fridge, it was it was touching the floor of the kitchen. And so like uh, Rose uh, goes in and puts a like velvet pillow underneath it. So it's not touching or no, her mom puts a velvet pillow underneath it. So it's not touching the floor. Yep. And then Rose thinks about all kinds of other ways she could passively aggress the same thing. Yeah. So uh, as you said, it's very similar to what's going on with John uh, in that there's a there's a tension between the child and the parent that on the one hand is very much there and is very much informing kind of their interactions with one another. It's shortly after this that Ma, uh, mom and Rose have their strife animation uh, where they fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the it, it is it is a real tension, but it also seems to be informed by some sort of inability to communicate in that yeah. everything that mom is doing is like it, it is it is weird and over the top like i already mentioned that uh, because it's plot relevant there's a mausoleum in their backyard that mom had built for rose's cat that died in childhood so they they have this entire mausoleum in their backyard just for this dead cat which rose sees and is like oh like you're laying it on so thick like this is clearly meant to insult me blah 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 uh but all of the things that mom does are actually really nice they they are incredibly over the top but she's like doing the nice thing and it's rose who seems to kind of be responding with uh these weird little barbs yeah um rose's mom also looks like the mom from the jetsons yeah uh like like dad she's drawn very iconically uh she doesn't have a face mm-hmm. the uh we learn about maple hoof here yes it's like delightful pony yes like <laughs> During the strife animation where mom, uh, like, like that's one of her attacks is she gives Rose a pony. <laughs> uh, and then one of my favorite reader commands is right after that strife finishes and someone commands Rose, like, you know, first be the pony, second trample mom. First be the pony. Um, so, yeah, other other than that, I mean, there are all these imps running around, shale imps. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John's having to fight them all. He gets uh, called an idiot over and over again by this by the 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 vagabond, yeah. whatever the hell it's called. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of like leveling up shit that's going on. <laughs> we get the, the Esha ladder, the leveling system. Yeah. 
No thanks. I think it's very funny. It's a good ex- it's a good excuse for puns, in my opinion. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but other than that, that's kind of what happens here, right? We the the big I would say big development is something you said already in the summary. But as far as like big plot stuff, we learned about like Skya and the forces of light and this like chess game. And lo and behold, later we see this chess game show up. Um. I, I don't know. I, do you have like big thoughts about the cosmology here or, or is this going to be become so overwhelming oppressive that we just have to talk about it constantly later? Uh, I mean, the only things to say about uh, the cosmology at this point, I would say, um, is that, you know, it's it's worth just sort of thinking about or noting, I guess, uh, the fact that pri- like the the game that is happening around Skya, this this dormant crucible of creative potential is a chess game. So mm-hmm. we are. Uh, not just computer games then are going to be important for this story, but all sorts of game logic, different types of games are going to get folded in uh, and uh, are going to serve as kind of thematic flair or signals for different parts of the story or different sets of characters. And then one thing that Hussey says in the commentary uh, is that, you know, this this land that they're in uh, or, you know, sort of the 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 band of land that they're in is called the medium. It, this is I'm quoting Hussey. Mm-hmm. It is literally a middle ground, the wide band of spherical space between Skya and the furthest ring, an infinite, unfathomable void. It is also a medium in the sense that a canvas is for paint, uh, an ether for emergent reality. In the sense that it is an ether, it has mystical, mystical, unexplained properties for sustaining life, specifically the players. It's not quite a vacuum since people can breathe in it, uh, and it is you know, not necessarily uh, a literal breathable atmosphere. Nevertheless, it also keeps like, for instance, their electronics running. So even though John's house has been ripped out of the earth and transported to another dimension, all of the electricity still works because the medium just allows like electronics to work. All of the kids are still talking to each other on, you know, talking to John uh, through Pester Chum because to be in the medium is to be connected to the Internet, like no matter where you are. Um, so that's something that I kind of want to, uh, you know, highlight here, uh, because I think we can do things with some of the stuff that Homestuck is laying down that are not necessarily, uh, what Homestuck was going for, uh, but, uh, you know, it can allow us to illuminate certain ideas. So if you're listening and, and you're maybe a big Homestuck fan, uh, you may find me or us occasionally like drifting from, uh, sort of closer attention to say like characters in the comic uh to broader questions about like the forces and oppositions within this comic and what are ideas that can help us uh both understand how they are operating in the story but then how can we use this story to sort of think about things that are happening outside of homestuck proper uh and one voice that i want to bring in here very briefly because i've threatened to do you know bringing in research here is is alexander galloway uh, a media theorist and particularly his book the interface effect which is published i think in 2013 so a couple of years after homestuck has really gotten started uh but i think you know uh there are some ideas from galloway 
and we're going to talk much more about this, I think, in the next part, uh, that uh, can be usefully illuminated by certain aspects of Homestuck. And one of the things that uh, I'm going to focus on, particularly because it's of interest to me, is this question of a medium and what it is. And this is, of course, something that Galloway thinks about. Uh, and just to, to quote here, right, uh, this is from Galloway, the interface effect. The possibility of a medium stands in intimate relation to what a medium is. That is to say, the definition of whatever medium is in question. So that's, you know, a lot of times to say medium in a sentence. But if you want to know, uh, and Cameron, of course, you've, you've read this book as well. So if you have other things you want to add mm -hmm. on kind of this point, um, to know what Galloway is getting at there and how he is kind of positioning himself against the broader academic field of media theory is that, uh, you know, there, there, there's, there's a way of doing media theory where uh, you are going to look at, say, television and treat that as kind of like its own sort of sustained, uh, stable object. Uh, we could do the same thing with a computer. We could do the same thing with maybe painting um, or uh, recorded sound even. Um, and one of the things that Galloway is trying to get at by saying that the possibility of a medium stands in intimate relation to what it is, uh, one of his overall projects here is trying to think like, well, what if uh, media are about specific modalities of a similar process, which is to say mediation itself. Uh, if you've listened to Game Studies Study Buddies, we've talked about uh, Lev Manovich and his uh, book Language of New Media. That's a fairly recent uh, episode at, at this time. Um, and one of the claims that Manovich makes in that book is that the computer as a medium eats up all other types of media. So rather than having a painting in front of you, uh, you can take a picture or a scan of that painting. Uh, it gets converted into digital information that can then be sent to any other computer and rendered on any other screen. And also because it's nothing more than kind of uh, arrangement of, of data at this point, it can be edited or remixed or sampled. You can do all sorts of weird transformative stuff uh, with uh, data that you cannot do with, say, a physical painting. And uh, Galloway is partly arguing against Manovich here uh, because he thinks that Manovich has kind of taken the wrong lesson. Uh, what Galloway wants to get at is that it's not that the computer is eating other media so much that uh, the computer is capable of staging the process of mediation in a way that uh, other kind of physical media have not been able to. So another quote from Galloway here, the computer does not remediate other physical media, it remediates metaphysics itself and hence should be more correctly labeled a metaphysical medium. Uh, so the the idea there being that uh, the thing about a computer is that it's a little machine filled with possibility space. When we talk about metaphysics, we're talking about kind of like, you know, the, the, the supra rules that govern like the emergence of distinct objects and their qualities and how we apprehend them and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, sort of deep philosophical questions. Uh, and one of the points that Galloway wants to make is that the computer can be taken as kind of a simulation of a metaphysical worldview. Uh, and clearly, I think there's something to be gained by reading this alongside Homestuck, which is 
kids being pulled into this weird computerized other world, right? Uh, uh, you know, digital hell Narnia and having to play this game, uh, a, a game that's going to extract things from them. Uh, it's not going to be clear about what it's doing, why it's doing any of this, what they have to do, because of course, Nana Sprite, even though she's trying to be helpful, is an NPC and therefore is kind of like programmed to be uh, tricksy and mysterious in this really frustrating way. She can't just tell John stuff. She has to do it like an NPC tutorial. Um, and so then, you know, another interesting kind of thing to think about here, and this is where Galloway is talking about World of Warcraft, um, specifically, at root, the game is not simply a fantasy landscape of dragons and epic weapons, but a factory floor, an information age sweatshop custom tailored in every detail for cooperative ludic labor. So when he's talking about World of Warcraft there, what he uh, is trying to get at is this idea that, um, you know, you, you play World of Warcraft, you see kind of the fantasy setting, uh, and you're having all sorts of fantasy fun with your dragons and your goblins and whatever, uh, but you also have this kind of information display, right? The HUD that has all of, uh, you know, your uh, moves and, and so on and so forth, like the time of day and your mini-map. Um, all of that stuff is there uh, to help you maximize your ability to play the game and uh, sink your time into it to get something out of it. At the same time, the game is getting something out of you being there, which is this illusion of a big uh, cooperative world where every digital person you meet or most digital people you meet um, have something else going on behind them, right? As kind of a, a, a mask over types of real interactions yeah you're you are the content yes within that world right? yes exactly and something similar is happening right like you know the way you you're talking about it here is like kind of thematically within if say world of warcraft but the the additional layer here that homestuck adds is that you are the content on someone is the content on every single level mm -hmm. right like john egbert <laughs> finding the imp is prompted by players deciding they want John Egbert to fight the imp, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of um, entrapment of labor uh, in a bunch of different scales, right? Both of these like fictional children doing fictional things in this world, but also of the viewer of the thing itself driving the, the bus in some ways mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of the show. So, so yeah, absolutely. Not the show, but the comic. Yeah. And so uh, just another thing about Galloway that I think is going to recur maybe in a lot of ways uh when galloway the, the book is called the interface effect and you'll notice i have not said the word interface like once since mentioning the title uh the interface for galloway the, the other kind of corrective that he's attempting here uh, is that when we talk about interfaces i, I think probably you know most of the time you, you i ask you what's what's the interface on this computer and you're like oh well it's the screen or it's, uh, you know, what is the interface for Twitter? Well, it's the website or it's the app on your phone uh, and it's these buttons and, and uh, you know, the composition dialogue and, and the, uh, you know, live feed or whatever. What Galloway wants to get at uh, when he talks about the interface effect uh, is that interfaces themselves as kind of stable entities in the way that I just described them, that like the interface is sort of a layer uh, that sits stably atop something else um, is it is not in fact uh, 
distinct from the thing that is behind it. Uh, that is to say, he says that interfaces love to present themselves as, or to be talked about as, uh, doors or windows, like openings, right? Clear openings that you can see through to something else behind them. Uh, the, the interface uh, is often thought of in terms of a frame. But what actually the interface is, Galloway wants to point out, uh, is that it is a process. It is not a thing. It is a sort of, you know, in the in the case of a computer, in the case of Twitter, for example, or something like that, uh, you have your computer screen that has to be working in a certain way, which means that it has to be communicating with, you know, your hard drive and your motherboard and all this stuff. Uh, so there's all this like actual physical electronics stuff happening in the room with you. But then uh, once we plug into the Internet, uh, what is the architecture of the Internet? Where is, uh, you know, information being called from? How's it being routed through DNS servers? Uh, uh, what are kind of the things? Uh, things that disappear below the surface of kind of like a graphical interface then uh, that are nevertheless uh, really important to the continued functioning of that interface. And of course, we can see Homestuck playing with this idea of interface. I mean, from the very beginning, right? Like, like Homestuck, it's is MSPA generally and Homestuck specifically is built on this concept of an interface between the reader and the comic. Uh, but really, like it's prom like you know, the, in the comic promises, we have this little window that you're that we're looking through, and we're seeing these characters run around, run around, and live their lives, and we are capable of putting information into the computer that, in some way, dictates how they're going to move or what they're going to do next. And this gets complicated with the way that uh, Wayward Vagabond takes over the comic, which I've already said is, of course, Hussey taking over the comic in some sense, uh, being able to mm -hmm. spur things along in a bit more of a directed fashion. Uh, but this is all sort of built into, you know, it's a, a what happens when the forum goes wrong or the comments page goes wrong? Well, something else steps in. The interface kind of is is flexible enough or like uh, it, it shifts, it morphs in such a way that rather than just being uh, us looking through this window onto the lives of these kids, there's this other character who stepped in between us and them, and it's WV, and we get to, you know, give him commands and, and do all sorts of things later. Um, but this is, you know, this these are the things that I want to write about in the book that I'm writing on uh, this damn comic. So uh, there are my thoughts. <laughs> hmm. Big thought. Hashtag uh, big thoughts, Michael. Mm -hmm. This is before they had hashtags. Oh, no, maybe this is right after we had. Hashtags. Yeah, I was going to say hashtags were maybe just getting invented. It was 2009 and we were inventing the hashtag. Mm -hmm. uh, Alexander Galloway hadn't even thought of the interface effect. yet. <laughs> we are ranged touch. If you want to keep up on all of our activities and the things that we are up to, you can find us on Twitter at range touch. Uh, you can also find uh, videos we do at youtube.com slash range touch. And if you want to support our efforts uh, in this show or others, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and kick us a few dollars every month. If you want to help us out, but you know, it's uh, in some other way, uh, you can rate this five stars on Apple podcasts or whatever podcast service that you're using, or you can tell a friend that uh, you know who you think might like this Homestuck show or one of our other shows that they should check us out 
We do not run advertisements. We, uh, you know, spread by word of mouth. And so it's through people who like our shows telling other people that they might like our shows that new and interesting folks have become a part of this uh, weird listening reading community that we've got going on. Uh, next time, then, uh, we are going to read uh, from where we left off, which is uh, WV uh, finding the book on human etiquette. We are going to read from that uh, to the end of Act 2, and we're going to talk about all the stuff that happens there. And uh, just to prepare you, we're going to talk actually quite a bit more about Alexander Galloway, because it turns out he is all over the end of Act 2, even though he hasn't written this book for four years. Uh, Cool. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Great.